Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 31st episode, I'll be talking to author, diversity advocate, and creator of the Yes All Women hashtag, Karuna Riazi, about the films of Studio Ghibli. Along the way, we discuss the precedent-setting power of Sailor Moon, how to have a scoundrel hero without making him a shitty dude, and the cultural juggernaut that is my neighbor Totoro. We'll finish the show with a signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the math of you. Editor's note, I don't quite know what happened with the audio on this episode. My audio came out okay, but Kay's one had a persistent hiss and hum all the way through it. I tried to fix it myself, but no dice. I even tried to isolate the track and send it off to local audio wizard and former guest of the show, Joel Turner, but even Joel had to admit that the audio was jacked up. Hopefully it's not too bothersome. We'll be back to our normal stellar audio quality next week. We join this conversation already in progress. you may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake. Okay, I'm known online as KM. I'm also known as Karuna Riazi, which is my author name. And my debut middle grade novel is coming out later this month, March 28th, from Simon Schuster's new imprint devoted to Muslim voices, Salam Reads. Besides being a published author now, I am a former member of the We Need Diverse Books campaign team. I am the founder of the online diversity blog, The Muslim Squad, and I'm a writer for diverse book packager, Cake Literary. And you also did something very notable in that you founded a hashtag. Oh, yes. And I founded the hashtag YesAllWomen in 2014, which probably you've heard about because it was covered by pretty much everyone. Oh, yeah. It's just, just a little underground thing. You've probably never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's always one of those things. I think my mom literally, the other day she asked me if I was still letting people know that I created Yes Women Can. I think she she <laughs> misfed it as for a moment. And my sister thought that was extremely hilarious. She was like, oh, it's only like, you know, been covered by every single major news publication, mom. Like, no worries that you, you mispronounced it. I'm not sure my mom would be able to handle the concept of hashtags. I think it would be so, so you've got a a thing on the internet? And it's like, yeah, mom, yeah, I do. Yeah, well, I think for most of my family, like especially my extended relatives, it's mostly like, oh, she does stuff on the internet and she didn't go to med school. So, you know, just one of those those things. Oh, that's too bad. Sorry, um, I'm having flashbacks too because um, I've got an extended blended family and a good chunk of them are my stepmother's family who are Maronite Lebanese in, in Canada. And yes, it was very much of that. So you're, you're, you're not doing that. You, you're not in university anymore. You're not going to become yeah. this thing. It's like, no, I've been doing yeah. really well since then. And I'm in a new country and I've been, you know, I've been doing this kind of work for like, nearly 10 years now and I'm quite good at it. Oh, 
That's too bad. (laughs) Yeah, it never gets old. Nope, not at all. Just like being told you're too thin and you should eat more. Yeah, yeah, definitely that too. (laughs) Also, I was a really finicky kid who would not touch food I didn't recognize. So I ate a lot of bread. Oh, well, bread is good. Bread's good? I mean, (laughs) I love bread. I think if anything is to be taken away from this podcast as a whole, is that I am pro-bread. Yeah, and me too. I I am very pro-bread. I do not see life without bread, to be honest. And, you know, I understand when people cannot eat bread, but if you're pro-bread, you should stay pro-bread, is what I'm saying, I guess. That, you know, don't worry and don't feel guilt. You should be able to eat bread without feeling guilt. Yeah, this is a Matthew View exclusive. Karuna Riazzi, pro-bread. Yes. Write it down. You heard it here first. <laughs> Well, let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in New York. I'm a New Yorker, born and raised. And, you know, that's even part of my biography, that I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I've lived in the suburbs, like, you know, near New York City. I'm trying to be a little vague because I'm always very sensitive about my exact location. You know, I've been in the suburbs all my life. I was homeschooled until high school. And then I, even for high school, I went to an, like mostly an online high school. And pretty much university is the only brick-and-mortar school I've been at in my life. As someone who recently visited New York, I am fascinated by the large sort of grid that comes out. It was actually the easiest city to navigate I had ever been to. I never worried about being lost or anything, which was great. And we were staying out in, in Williamsburg. And for one day when Kimiko didn't feel like leaving the room, I just basically got, stepped out the door, turned right, and walked from Williamsburg to, to the High Line, and then all the way up the High Line and then down Broadway to catch the train back. And yeah, so I really got to see a solid chunk of New York. And it's, it's really interesting. I thought it was something that people were like, oh, it took you all that time to do that. I'm like, well, yes, there's lots of things. I kept turning down alleyways and looking into little shops and things. So it's really cool. Yeah. New York City is like, it's really, I really don't feel like it's an overrated city, to be honest. And maybe that's like, you know, my bias of my loyalty speaking here. Mm-hmm. But even when, you know, I get to go into the main part of the city for events and such, and I'm walking down the street and it's been a, it's like it'll be a street that I've visited before and there'll still be, you know, so many interesting things to see and, you know, it always feels like you're discovering something new and there's so many different people walking by. You know, it really feels like you're like in an incredible place. And normally this is the part where I would go into what sort of kid were you, but I wanted to speak a little bit. Because you mentioned that you were homeschooled. Yes. I have a fair few friends who are homeschoolers and who were homeschooled themselves. So how did you feel that that contributed to your experience once you got to university? Were there differences? Like, did you feel that... Because the thing is, I'm thinking of the homeschooling kids that I know, and they're all really gregarious, kind of excited kids, and they didn't have much problems acclimatizing. What was your experience? I actually feel like, you know, I kind of hopped in right away, like my professor's were aware that I was homeschooled because, you know, like they do this little intro in the classes. So like, you know, my first semester, I was like, you know, this is my first time in school. I just came out of an online high school. And I think everybody was expecting me to be really quiet. But then I think everybody in the department now knows that I'm like a total Hermione Granger and that my <laughs> hand will always be up even when they don't want it to be up. And it's like, it turns into this thing where they're like, okay, but anybody but Kay, okay, like put your hand down right now. And I see you there, you know, I know, like, (laughs) calm down. I really didn't feel like, you know, everybody always assumes that, you know, homeschoolers, you're going to be totally, like, confused about life and you won't know how to react to people. 
but I had like a really good friend circle and I spent so much time at my local library that it was like my second home and I made a lot of friends my actually my best friend and I met in the library during high school and she was also homeschooled she was a local homeschooler as well so you know like it actually helped facilitate friendships for me in that way I have a huge family as it is like a lot of cousins and going to the local masjid and stuff it was actually like you know there wasn't really any disconnect on the social front for me to be honest though I did spend a lot of parties reading in the corner but I still had <laughs> friends and it used to be sort of a joke because even at one of my friends weddings I told her I was like if the reception gets boring I'm going to have a book and I literally oh, had wow. my book out under the table and one of my mom's friends was having a little fit at me and she was like why are you doing that and I was like the bride isn't even out yet for the reception no one's doing anything but eating like you no know, appetizers I'm just sitting here I'm not bothering anybody and all my friends were laughing at my expense but you know I got to read for like five minutes before the bride came out and I was like, well, see, I would have just had to make awkward small talk about why I'm not a biology major, which I didn't want to be part of. So, <laughs> you know, like it was it was a win-win situation for me. And my, the bride did not actually mind. She thought it was hilarious that I kept my promise that I was going to read at her wedding. I think that's an excellent ultimatum to give. I mean, I think everyone should take that on board. You tell your friends that are having weddings, hey, 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 if it's boring, I'm cracking a book. You're going to see me at the back with a Terry Pratchett book. And if you see me peeking over that book, that means you're boring and step up your game. Yeah, make it interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. So what sort of kid were you? I was a very bookish one, as I've said already. And I think I was also really, like, precocious in a way. Like, um, my mom still has a bound book I wrote when I was, like, four or five. And I hand-wrote it and I illustrated it. And it's, like, about a girl and a bunny and she keeps threatening to show it at my release party, which I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> going to let that happen or not. I was really influenced by, you know, all the fantasy I read. And I was lucky enough to really like a lot of stuff that had, like, you know, girl power elements to it in the fantasy. So I kind of grew up with this sense that, you know, girls can do really awesome stuff. And one day I really want to do something cool. So I guess in that way, I've actually gotten where my kid self wanted me to be, even though... Some days I don't always feel like it. Oh, wow. So what sort of things were you reading? Like you mentioned fantasy stuff. And, and I think anyone who's been a frequent listener to the show knows that at any point, fantasy books are going to come up because they are incredibly widely read. Yeah. And there's something that so many people did and not everybody talks about, really. I mean, I, I've said this anecdote before. I mean, my dad thought he was the only one who had read Lord of the Rings until the movie came out. And because he'd never spoken about it with anyone. Like there's that magical moment when you're talking to your friends and you realize, oh, they've read this book too. For me, it was Wheel of Time when I was a teenager and I was able to talk to my friend Melissa and realize, oh my God, because she was talking about this book that her and her friends read. And I went, wait a minute, I know this book too. Yeah. <gasps> there are others out there. So what were you reading around this time? I mainly remember Lloyd Alexander, Thanawyn Jones. Howl's Moving Castle was particularly formative for me because I think Sophie had her. She was like, you know, so snarky and awesome that she kind of reminded me of myself. I'm told I'm really candid by my family members. I can be really blunt when I want to be. <laughs> and Ellen Enchanted, Gail Carson Levine, that was like really, really formative for me. Like I remember even coming up to my mom and I narrated the whole book to her. Like, you know, pretty much that that was how much I loved it. I kept just coming back and recounting to her, like, you know, what was happening. 
I think I didn't read Lord of the Rings until like early high school, but that was another one too. I think that's kind of formative for everybody on some level. And then outside of fantasy, like you know, I think the usual sort of like you know really beloved heroes like Anne of Green Gables, and I think Anne also spoke to me because you know she was very. Fanciful, and she had these big aspirations to, like, you know, write books. So I think that was another reason why, you know, I really felt close to her. And I pretty much, you know, really went for stuff that was like, you know, really witchy heroines who like save the day, or heroines who wanted to write. It was kind of like, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess. Yeah, totally. And I forget because when I was growing up in Canada, the CBC was constantly running the Road to Avonlea. TV series. It was. Oh yeah, I love that series. Yeah, it was on all the time. It's to the point where someone will mention it, and I'll go, "Oh wait, it was that thing that was on literally all the time," and I used to get teased at my workplace because, as you can hear, I have a Canadian accent, which is less less harsh than it was when I first came to Australia 14 years ago. But people would ask me to say, "I'm sorry, Anne." And I'm just like,、oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> I'm not your performing monkey. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, and it's like, come on, say it, say the line.、I'm、like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry, Anne. Oh boy. Now, in your initial lead up to this episode, you said you wanted to talk about Sailor Moon, and I've had guests talk about Sailor Moon before. But what was your Sailor Moon experience? Well, I think I watched Sailor Moon actually. I think I first got introduced to Sailor Moon when we went to visit family friends in Canada, and the daughter of the family, who was you know much older than me because I think she was in high school at the time and I was really young, she had all the you know English dubs Sailor Moons recorded. Oh, the deep dubs, yeah. So she ended up like when she went to school, she was like you know you can watch my videos. So I was like pretty enchanted by this anime because I'd been introduced to anime like you know the Studio Ghibli, which I'm going to talk about. I guess in a little bit, it was kind of like you know, there's this anime and there are these really awesome, really pretty girls who are very smart at school and you know, really are really tough and they're really devoted to each other. It was just, it was just really awesome to me, and I think I got hooked. Interestingly enough, from the time I was little, I could not stand that dub for some reason. It's still <laughs> just like one of those things that I've actually gotten to fight with the official Sailor Moon Canada、oh、Twitter account、oh、online.、Boy. I don't know. They always appear. I never tag them, but they always appear when I say I don't like the dub. And they're always like, "You are insulting Canada by not liking the dub." I'm not sure how it gets complained that way, but every time it's like it's some sort of skirmish with them. You're fighting a good fight. But you know, I just never liked the dub, and then I ended up, I ended up getting access to the sub version, and I was actually doing a rewatch of it until school got in the way, and it was still just pretty awesome to me. I think when I was younger, I was really drawn to it because of Ami, who is kind of like my Sailor Moon patroness, if you could say it that way. Like you know, she's on all my social media and stuff. Sailor Mercury.、Uh, I was about to say, I was going to ask which Sailor Scout were you, but I think based on our earlier conversation, I'm like, yeah, she's going to be an Ami Mizuno. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I would say that. Like I was really. Even as a kid, I was like, okay, there's this girl who loves to study. She's really smart. She's the really like you know brainy one of the bunch and. You know, not saying the other girls aren't smart, but you know, like that's who she is. And I was just like, well, if there was anybody I wanted to be like, it was her. So I think that's how she pretty much ended up being like, you know, the person that people associate me with when we have Sailor Moon conversations. And two of my friends have even sent me little figurines of her. One of my friends just sent me one of the Funko Pop ones. Oh, cute. 
that I have on my study desk, which is really, really sweet and awesome that people associate her with me now and like find ways to find traits in me from her, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. See, I think Ami Mizuno would be very well pleased to be at your study desk. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> in, in close proximity to a math book. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm an English major, so there's like mostly English and psychology textbooks there, but I think it still counts. I think you're right. There's a new dub that's recently been released by Viz, which is, uh, I'd say, categorically an improvement on the Deke dub, because the Deke dub, part of it was that they weren't really sure what they were adapting, especially in some of those early episodes, where they would almost completely recut episodes. And, and then you get weird stuff like Artemis being the most Canadian voice I have ever heard. And also just, just yeah, it's just a little bit strange. And while it, it is exceptionally formative for a lot of people, I think you're getting kind of the watered down view. And you're right, either going to the subbed version or maybe the new dub, you're getting a fuller experience. However, I'm just going to throw in there just from, as someone who's revisited it fairly recently, with the subtitled version, you're also getting a much weirder show. Yeah, actually, in a way. Like episode two. <laughs> You've got Umino flipping a teacher's skirt and her screaming, now no one will marry me. That caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. Yeah, yeah, I actually, I actually know which one you're talking about. Yeah, and it's a weird one. Yeah, I don't know if that can be like, you know, chalked up to cultural differences and like, you know, the jokes and stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like overall, I think that, you know, the message still stays. And I also like how they, you know, try to talk about, you know, different aspects of growing up a girl and you know how you feel and sometimes I must admit that you know looking back and having Usagi like you know worry about her weight so much like you know that's something that you know when I was younger would have like hit me more painfully than now when I'm like you know used to it still I think you know every formative media when you start looking at it you're going to start seeing things and be like oh wait I didn't remember that one but I'm really proud that I'm kind of like the Sailor Moon ambassador for all the younger girls I know like I got my neighbor hooked on it, and she actually somehow binged the whole series oh, last wow. semester. Like, over, it felt like it was just a few weeks, and she was like, I'm done with that. Do you know anything else I can watch? And I was just like, <laughs> wait a minute. You're done with that? She's like, yeah, and I started watching Crystal, and I was just like, okay. <laughs> All right, then. That's good. Yeah, Crystal's gotten really good, apparently. I started on the first season and kind of dropped off. Yeah. But, yeah, apparently season two and three are really good. This is my confession. I still have not watched Crystal. So I know I need to, but I just haven't had the time. I started watching Crystal because I went back and downloaded this huge file, this torrent of actual like TV rips, which means they're all terrible, low quality in order to get the the deep dubs because at the time they weren't available on DVD yet. And so I went and got these old ones. And of course, watching it on at like, you know, 196p on a big TV is not great. It looks really rough and strange. So then Crunchyroll had had a thing where they're like, oh, free month and Sailor Moon Crystals just debuted and you could watch it in HD and it looks pretty. And I loved it for three episodes and then just dropped off because like you, things got busy. And a lot of people complained that the animation was not as smooth in that first season. Like there was a lot of floating eyes and weird errors, but they fixed that by the second series and it got, apparently it's gotten a lot better. It's much closer to the manga apparently. Uh, than the the anime. Yeah, I've heard that, and that's made me really excited to watch it. But just a matter of time, I guess. I did make time last month to watch Yuri on Ice because I didn't uh-huh. want to get spoiled. Yes. <laughs> but I think that's the only time I've been on Crunchyroll recently. 
just to um, pretty much binge watch that. Shout out to Alison Stock and Elise Dubois, who are my Yuri on Ice people on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I literally anything I see, I'm just going to tag them and they'll come in and just go. Like They don't need any momentum from me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mentioned the different aspects of girlhood or growing up a woman in Sailor Moon because I've had a lot of people talk to me about specifically Sailor Jupiter and the idea that she is the toughest and the strongest and the most physically capable, but her hobbies are what would be considered traditionally feminine. And a lot of people took from that the message that you can be strong and tough, but also be, you know, ostensibly girly if you want to be. And then you've got Ami, who is, you know, as you mentioned, extremely smart and very dedicated to studying, but she's not really shamed for that at any point in the series. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of actually... A sense of pride for every single one of the girls like even Usagi like you know okay she might be called different weird stuff by her future husband and but even that sometimes uh, he refers to her at one point as every trash pile has its garbage <laughs> yeah Darian what are you doing sometimes like you know his insults could be kind of like well I guess you can just read him as being very petty like you know those first that first half a season I feel like but, you know, like, even then, like, you know, there's still, like, you know, pride for her, too, and what she does. And, you yeah. know, Luna might walk up behind her, like, you know, fussing, like, look at your life, look at your choices. But <laughs> at the end of the day, she's still Sailor Moon, and she's still the one who, like, they all love and they all want to protect and keep with them. Yeah. And I still think that's, like, you know, really beautiful, too, that you have this girl who introduces herself every starting clip. She's saying that, you know, she's 14 years old. And she is a bit of a crybaby, but that's okay. You know, like, it's kind of like, it was kind of reassuring in a way. Yeah. That, you know, you can you can cry about stuff and you can be hungry all the time, but you can still be a hero. You don't have to judge yourself for that. And I think one of, actually, this is like an entirely different subject, but I think one of the major flaws with the dub was like the whole cousins thing. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, this is... <laughs> yeah, it was like... That was like another denial, I think, of one aspect of growing up that it was just like, I honestly cannot, I don't know what went on there, you know, pretty much. But I'm glad that, you know, when people see the sub, they can be like, oh, they were not cousins, actually, after all. They were saying affectionate things to each other. That means they're a couple. Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad for that, too. You know, just gal pals, you know, just just, just gal pals. Yeah, gals and, being pals, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Zoe Sight being a dude. <laughs> Yeah. And and being in love. And it's like, no, 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 no. So I said, it's a woman. We're not doing it. It's like, come on, Deep Dub. We all know. Yeah. And for all that Usagi's hobbies are eating, sleeping, and taking the easy way out, which I am waiting for that to be a t-shirt so I can buy it. Her power is friendship. Like, she is, for all that Usagi has a lot of friends, to all of those friends, Usagi is their best friend. Because she is, like, that's her thing. She is, has the purest heart and is the nicest person to her friends. For all that, like you said, she's a bit of a klutz and gets 35 on her tests and, you know, runs out of the house with toast in her mouth all the time. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, it was, there was just something really affirming about it. Yeah, totally. And so you mentioned earlier that, that you originally wanted to talk about Studio Ghibli films. So why don't we start there? What was your first introduction to Studio Ghibli? My parents used to check out My Neighbor Totoro for my sister and I. I feel like we used to dominate the library copy when it was on VHS. And I was like four and my sister's like two years younger than me, so she was two. And we used to watch that and we used to like, you know, really feel intimately with the characters because, you know, Sasuke, she's like, you know, the oldest one and 
May is the younger one, and they're running around in the house. Like, and, you know, they live in the countryside, but we live in the suburbs, so sometimes it felt close enough. It's a big sister having to look after her little sister, and they're seeing all these incredible magical spirits around them and worrying about their mom who's sick. And, you know, it was just a really formative part of our childhood. I can still sing, like, you know, the songs from the original English dub. And if anybody's listening who has not seen My Neighbor Totoro, please do not watch the Disney version. Please try and find the Fox version because if you're going to watch a dub, that's the best one and the Disney <laughs> version ruined it. And I think that's kind of agreed upon that the Disney version should be forgotten. But that was my first film and I was just pretty much... I think at that point we thought that was the only movie that had ever come out of that studio and Hayao Miyazaki was pretty much like our household hero. So then I think a few years after that, my dad checked out Spirited Away and that was like just, no way, I'm skipping ahead. <laughs> after my neighbor Totoro was Kiki's Delivery Service and Kiki's Delivery Service was just like, she is still me, like me as a adolescent, like uncertain, like, you know, trying to figure out friendships, trying to figure out where I fit into stuff, like, you know, trying to figure out you know, my strengths, my abilities. It just really, like, you know, it always, it still hits me hard. Like, just hearing the opening, that, like, opening music mm -hmm. where she's outside on the grass and listening to the radio, it's just, like, it's still, like, you know, really one of those powerful films for me. And that's another one that, you know, like, really defines my childhood and growing up as a girl and, like, you know, the things you feel and think about and worry about. And I still refer back to, like, that clip where her artist friend is talking to her about how everybody needs to figure out their own strengths and somehow it's not easy and talking about how sometimes she gets blocked in her art and I still refer back to that on really bad nights when I can't think of you know why I'm writing this and you know everything's coming out really bad and you know no one's going to read this and no one's going to be able to like you know find anything beautiful in this and one of my biggest writing self-esteem issues that a lot of my friends can tell you is not being able to write beautiful things that people can relate to so a lot of that film really hits home for me. So like those were the two major films I think that my sister and I grew up on. Yeah, specifically the song from My Neighbor Totoro, that do 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 do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can sing it, but you don't want me to sing it. <laughs> oh no, I was gonna say because my partner Kimiko has a little Totoro, like sort of a jewelry holder, and when you lift the top, it's got a little present inside. When I saw it the first time, I, I asked her about it and. She sung the song, which I then had to quickly record and send to my friend Annie and watch them just kind of explode with joy at one another. I have never seen something with, with the cultural penetration and weight of my neighbor Totoro because everybody has that reaction. The, oh my god, yes, let's, let's do this, let's sing the song, let's talk about it. Even to a picture of it or someone having a little plushie of it or a cat bus or something. Yeah, there's one girl in my school and she has a backpack, I think, from Hot Topic. And everybody stops her. Like, I think I've stopped her twice, even after I've seen it once. I'm just like, I love that backpack. And she's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, when I, when I first saw Kiki's Delivery Service, I think I would have been like 16 or 17. And I have a, a younger sister who's 13 years younger than me. And so she got the steady diet of animated movies. And I remember like she was watching this this movie. And I remember thinking, this, what is this movie? I don't recognize this one. This is... This isn't one of your normal Disney ones. And it's not a Don Bluth movie, so what's, what's happening? And watching it with her. And I remembered being so affected, even at, you know, ostensibly being far too old and mature for such things. <laughs> as I'm sure I would have said at the time, being the jerk that I was. Watching Kiki go out in the rain 
on her broom because she had to keep going. Yeah. And getting blown around and getting sick afterwards and just watching that and just being like spellbound and being like, oh no, what she did? don't they know she's sick? Oh no, she can't do this. No. And then, you know, trying to shrug back on my air of cool and really kind of failing at it. Yeah, those are really just movies that break down your emotional barriers, to be honest. Like, I was going to start talking about Spirited Away, and I think I saw that one around 10 or 11, and that one is the one that I rationally start tearing up whenever I put it on for someone who hasn't seen it before, and then I have to, like, explain why I'm tearing up like a total strange, bizarre person. (laughs) My neighbor, she's, like, 16, and she was just like, what is wrong with you? You know, and I was just like, no, it's good, just keep watching, I'm fine, I'll get over it. Chihiro is another heroine that just really speaks to, like, you know, a lot of uncertainty, trying to, like, you know, figure out this new world. Like, you know, first she's moving, then she's, like, you know, in the spirit world, and just, like, you know, realizing that she has a good friend with her. And I don't know, it was just, like, one of those really beautiful films. And that actually was the film that became kind of the ex- extended family favorite. Like, my cousins have all watched it hundreds of times. And we have inside jokes about their reactions to it and stuff like that. It was just another one of those that, you know, really just touches me and actually really inspired me in terms of my writing around when I first started really seriously, you know, writing beyond my kid ventures. It used to be that thing that, you know, I would look back and I'd be like, am I as proud of this as I would be if I, you know, had been part of working on something like Spirited Away? Can I write something amazing and incredible and exciting, but also heartwarming like Spirited Away? Something that I still look back at a lot is kind of like, you know, one of those things that you hold up and you wish you could create something like that. I think in the last 10 years or so, there's really been a resurgence of Studio Ghibli, especially when it comes to like I think all of them were released on DVD in those white cases, and there was the one big box, which now needs to be added to, thanks to the magical world of Arietti and Ponyo and things that had come out, where these things started to get a much broader release than they had at one point. And I think that's attributed to a lot of people like yourself having these extremely strong attachments and wanting to see these things recognized. And really, I think the wider film community accepting that, A, it's not just an animation ghetto, B, it's not just this weird Japanese movie. It's that these are beautiful and striking and groundbreaking and have a lot of universal storytelling that hit with a lot of people. And so, again, it's that idea that you are not the only one who enjoys this. This is a thing enjoyed by a lot of people. And especially, I think, Spirited Away is one of those ones where it's often held up as not just that, oh, it's a nice movie or that it's a, a good movie. It's that this is an capital I important movie. Yeah, it really, it really is. I mean, I could say that everything from that studio is like really just like, you know, beautiful and powerful in their own ways. Like even the purportedly last movie from Miyazaki, The Wind Rises, I've spent most of it crying, but sometimes I just think of those opening lines that the wind is rising and we must try to live. And I think about it a lot, you know, when there's like catastrophes going on in the world and you just have to keep going on like normal. And, you know, you just have to keep trying to figure out what it is that you want to do and who you want to be. And, you know, pretty much every single movie that I look back and watch, even the ones that are not technically under the studio because they are before their creation, you know, I still, some of my heart goes out to them too. Like the Castle of Cagliostro, oh, which yes. is like Lupin the Third. I don't know why I love that one, but I just love it a lot. My friend Annie, who I mentioned before, 
at one point we were just hanging out and she's like, uh, oh, I'll come over and I'll bring some beers and we'll watch a movie. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so she comes to my house and I'm like, okay, well, what do you want to watch? You know, I've got a bunch of stuff. We've got Netflix, you know. And then she's like, I've brought this one. I'm like, what is this? Like, what? Is, okay, okay, are we, are we watching this? And Annie previously had brought me a bunch of sort of really random anime. Like, the last thing she had brought over, it was Midori Days, which is <laughs> where uh, a local bully gets his right hand transformed into a girl that likes him. And he has to then... I, oh, my God. I have never heard of that one. It's, it's so weird. It's so strange where he's got this essentially little hand puppet girl who talks to him and has a crush on him and he has to go through life hiding her and still trying to maintain his bully reputation. It's it's so strange. So I was expecting strange things from Annie when she would just bring me some random DVD over to my house. So then she brings me The Castle of Cagliostro and it was nothing like I expected. Although it does have my favorite moment where Lupin just decides to tell physics to be damned. And yeah. a woman's falling off a tower, and he runs down the tower next to her and springs off the tower and catches her, and they hit the water okay. And I had yeah. to rewind it twice to go, like, wait, what? what? What just happened? I think part of why I love that movie, too, is, like, you know how noble he is for being Lupin? Like, you know, yeah. he still has a sense of, like, you know, wanting to protect her and, like, wanting to remind her that she's strong, too. She has worth, too. Like... It was just, it was just really like, it was actually fun, but it was also one of those things where I wasn't like, I don't know, I'm really bad with like my feminist brain, but I get jarred out of stuff so badly sometimes. It was one of those things that I could like, you know, appreciate the characters as well. And I think another movie that, it's not a Miyazaki movie, but The Cat Returns. Um, I don't know if you've ever... I know of it, but I haven't seen it, so please go ahead. The Cat Returns is about this regular Japanese high schooler girl and she ends up saving this cat she sees in the road because, you know, she's very sweet like that. And it turns out the cat is the cat prince of the cat kingdom. And by saving his life, he's like, you know, you're going to be repaid for this. And so she's like, you know, well, that was weird. That cat talked to me. And, you know, but she's going about her life. She has a crush that's unrequited. And, you know, she has a lot of worries. And then it turns out that the cat king wants her to come to the cat kingdom and marry the cat prince as a reward for her deed. And then it becomes, like, you know, really complicated. At that point, it becomes complicated. It's pretty complicated to start. But it's just, it's, it was just, it's just really a fun film, particularly because she starts seeing, you know, how much of a awesome person she actually is. She's very kind, and she gets rewarded for things, but she also sees good deeds that she did in the past coming back, you know? At the end, I also love the fact that, I hope this is not a spoiler, but she starts realizing that, you know, whether her crush ever recognizes her or not, she still has worth on her own. And, you know, she has really awesome adventures that she can, you know, be doing in high school herself without having to worry who sees her and who doesn't. And she has her best friend, you know, like she kind of finds that satisfaction and that inspiration to keep going and do interesting things on her own. So that's another one that I really you know, really enjoy seeing again, even though the first time I saw it, I was kind of just like, well, this is going to be weird. There's a cat out there that wants to marry this girl. But, <laughs> you know, it, it all turned all right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that, you know, the idea of looking at things with a critical eye. And I think a lot of media can suffer for that. Like you mentioned the Castle of Calicagliostros and how Lupin is helpful and encouraging. And for all he is a thief and funny and stuff, is never kind of a shitty dude. And and like that makes that stand up in a way that is actually encouraging as opposed to 
oh, well, we've got to look past the problematic aspects of this to even enjoy it in the slightest, or like you said, get thrown out of the story. So especially when you're looking at media where you've got a girl as a protagonist who is not shamed for what she is. I mentioned Terry Pratchett earlier. One of the first books I ever sent my little sister was Terry Pratchett's The We Free Men, because I think Tiffany Aching as a, a main character is fantastic. Yeah, she is. Oh, so good. And it's like, it's subverting those tropes, but it also is living them to its fullest because, hey, she is iron inside. She's, uh, it's amazing. Blue dress, giant boots, frying pan equals hero. Yeah. Don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Yep, definitely. That Tiffany gets to the end of those books and for all that she has, an entire tribe of tiny, drunken, super-powered Scotsmen, they are not the stars of the book. She is the star of the book. And it is not the fact that yeah. she has these friends that makes her special. She is special in herself. And they are still so dear, too, actually, to me, oh. with their odd little selves. I haven't read The Shepherd's Crown yet because I've not been able to bring myself to after Terry Pratchett died. It's one of two celebrities that when they died, I actually wept real tears and kind of fell apart. Yeah. He was one, and there's a Canadian author named Stuart McLean who actually died in the last month who just absolutely crushed me because he was like the voice oh, of boy. the radio voice of my childhood and he would tell these lovely little stories on the radio and uh, yeah I heard that at work I had to go into the bathroom and cry a little bit but oh, the We Free Men series and yeah the the, <laughs> the We Free Men series has been the, the basis for a lot of terrible attempts at Scottish accents <laughs> in my household oh yeah because and I'm trying to explain to people that the way you steal a sheep is you get one person under each of its feet and then you run really fast. <laughs> Much of that book has worked its way into my lexicon stuff like, you know, when a Nack McFeagle is left alone in the room, he will fight himself out of boredom. Oh, yeah. Until he gets bored of kicking himself in the head. <laughs> yeah. This world is something incredible, though. I think my first one was Monstrous Regiment. I read it like a couple of years ago. I actually came to this world kind of late, but I just... I really, really love it. And I, I think he was one of the authors that I did cry over as well when I heard that he had, you know, left this world. But I think the other one was Diana Wynne-Jones that I was just really, really just shocked and, you know, stunned by it and saddened because I had a letter that I'd always been sitting on that I never sent to her. And I think I ended up putting that on my blog and I did get some, like, you know, reblogs and it got put up as part of her celebration week, I think, a few years ago. Oh, that's really nice. But it, I still really regret not sending it to her. So kids, I'm telling you now, kids listening at home, if ever you think of, well, and I suppose now it's writing an email as opposed to writing a letter. If you think that author does not care, that author cares. I'm someone who wrote to Catherine Kerr in 2001 because I had been reading her books for, at the time, like 10 years, which seemed like the longest time on the planet because I was, I was 21 and I had gotten one of her books when I was like 11 or 12. And I'm like, this, this person has been in my life. I need to tell her how important this is. And I did. And because it was the nascent days of the internet, she wrote back. And I asked her why some of her books had terrible covers in Australia when I really loved the original covers. And she's like, yeah, that was a publisher's decision. I have no idea. That was meant to be this character who never actually did the thing that's on the cover. So yes, write your heroes. Always. Yes, definitely. And even if they don't write back, chances are they still have appreciated it, even if they didn't have the chance to write back. I remember I wrote Linda Sue Park. I think at the time she only had time to send like, you know, one of those printout letters. Mm -hmm. But then I, I was honored to meet her in 2015 because I went to Book Expo America and We Need Diverse Books was having a panel. So I went and I sat in 
And at the end, um, Ellen O, who's a good friend and, you know, the founder of We Need Diverse Books, she brought her over and she was like, oh, this is Kay. And she shook hands with me and she was like, you know, it's so nice to meet you. And I was like, you know, I wrote you a letter when I was younger. And she was like, oh, uh. I'm sure I enjoyed it. And I'm sorry that I didn't always get to respond to people, but it always meant so much when people wrote to me. So I was just like, well, there's the confirmation, you know, they do appreciate it, even if they don't always have time to write you. A specific letter and I think there was another author Catherine Lasky she used to write like you know for American Girl they had this history mystery series and I think I wrote her one year when I was probably 10 about how much I loved that mystery she wrote and not only did she write me back she wrote me a handwritten letter oh, wow. and she like stuffed the envelope with bookmarks and she was like I'm so happy that you wrote to me and I'm glad you wrote to me when I have time to send you a nice letter back and she told me how her cat was doing or something like that and oh it was just, I was just so thrilled. That's really great. It's just one of those things. And I think now with email, you know, you're more likely to hear back from the author. And so many friends tell me that, you know, they're so pleased to hear from people. Yeah, that's really lovely. And, you know, I think that's actually a nice note for us to wrap up. So, Kay, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet or look into your book, whereabouts would they go? Right now I'm working on my website. I am the worst author because I'm still building oh. it. You can find me on Twitter as Karuna Riazi or Gilded Spine. And you can find The Gauntlet on Amazon as it's open for pre-order. It's open for pre-order on Barnes and & Nobles. And you can also find, like, you know, my biography and stuff. Simon Schuster has an official author page for me now. If you put in Karuna Riazi and then, like, you know, they have a little listing of where my release party is going to be if you're like you know in the states and you would like to try and see if you can attend that all of that information is pretty easy to find i think and i'll be working on the website okay i expect to see a little gif of a little sign saying under construction and a tiny a tiny guy like digging on your page <laughs> <laughs> real geo city style i should do something like that <laughs> totally all right well thank you so much Kay. this has been really nice thank you so much for having me it was, it was really a lot of fun Thank you to Karuna Riazi for her time. As Karuna doesn't drink, I've prepared a mocktail to her exact specifications, which were something with coconut water. I'm sure we can arrange that. I present the coconut chihiro. Start with half a lime. Cut it into three wedges and put it in the bottom of a heavy bottom glass. Use a rolling pin or a muddler to squeeze the juice out of, although don't completely pulverize the lime. Take a handful of mint leaves Hold them in your palm and clap your hands sharply before dropping them into the glass. Add half a teaspoon of sugar and muddle again. Add three ounces each of coconut water and sparkling mineral water. Stir to combine and serve. And if you are the kind of person who needs to add alcohol to stuff, I'm just saying it's a little bit of rum away from being a mojito. What a pretty beverage. Be sure to take care of it, dear. Enjoy. Don't
Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month or as much as a thousand dollars a month. Actually, that's a lie. You can go even higher if you want. Pledging gets you early access to episodes, certain levels have physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave us a five-star rating. It helps with discoverability so more people are listening to the show. Or, if you want to, you can write a review, and I'll read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of every word, to find our Spotify playlist. I update it every week with all the music I use in the show, including this. It's Flowers by Chibamato. I thought it was very fitting, considering the New York roots of this band. And also, it's from their second, very underrated album, Stereotype A, which I think is actually stronger than Viva La Woman, but is far less known. Next week, I'll be talking to artist and cartoon expert Art Lee Vasquez on filmation and the unexpected sequels to both Snow White and Pinocchio. Join me, won't you? Sorry.